understanding that a lot of the conventional wisdom that we all had for decades, stuff built up for 100 years of working in offices, isn't always right. And it's not always the right solution. Things have changed. And so my own like starting point in this was all the stuff that I learned early on in my career turns out to have not been the right solution as things scale. And this sort of change can be hard for people. But one of the, uh, the benefits is I just think people are more open to, to change than they ever have been. And they're seeing some real bright spots. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Brian Elliott, executive leader of the Future Forum. Now, Brian is over three decades leading teams and building companies as a startup CEO a product leader at Google, and now at Slack, where he's a senior VP. In fact, this is where we first met over two years ago, at the beginning of the pandemic. You see, I worked with Slack and a group that they brought together for Brian and his peers to help collaborate with CIOs and CTOs that were facing this transition to remote work during the pandemic. It was an amazing community that we all helped build together and actually one of the most rewarding things that we did. But throughout that process, I was constantly inspired by the work Brian and his collaborators and team were doing in the future forum, researching challenges about the future of work. And I'm even more excited to share that he's encapsulated that in a book with two of his co-authors, Sheena and Helen, on how the future works, leading flexible teams to do their best work of their lives. It's fascinating to understand these insights that they've gathered as a researching group, but from their own experiences. And Brian shares loads of them on this show. But before we dive in today, let's go back to where it all started for him. Early start of my career post-college was as a management consultant. I spent years in one of the big strategy consulting firms and learned a lot, had a fantastic experience. But management consulting firms hire people that are all very similar to one another in attitude and take and things like that. And there was a phrase that I learned early on in my career, which was seldom wrong, never in doubt. You know, as a 25-year-old that's being sold to a corporation as an expert, yeah, that sort of arrogance, yeah, 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 becomes an important factor, honestly, in 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 your career stepping stones there. But I also got burnt out on consulting because I felt like I wasn't really accomplishing anything. Right? What was I building that was of lasting value? And that was sort of challenging for me. So I went into startups and I, I joined an early stage company, a company called Olibris, and. It was a, an amazingly great experience and amazingly hard because I very quickly got the wind knocked out of me, right? In terms of yeah. managing people and learning what it really took. And I had a wonderful mentor, a woman named Maria DeLeon, who was uh, our head of people in the team. And she sat me aside one day and said, you're kind of a jerk, except she didn't use the word jerk. She was a little more blunt about it. <laughs> and she was right. It was, had, had this sort of moment of understanding that that way that I'd learned of, of operating seldom wrong and never in doubt was, was off-putting to a lot of people. And, and importantly, it wasn't inviting people into the conversation to actually help solve the problem that we were trying to help solve. And so I'll give you another example from the same point in time. We had a head of engineering and the head of engineering and I were not seeing eye to eye on how to sort of move forward on these sort of big, larger projects. And I thought what we needed was a, a project manager and and he said, great, then you can go and hire one. And, and my answer to which at the end of the day was, okay, I will. Let's figure this out together about how we're going to 
approach this. And there's just a, a bunch of examples within that time frame where what I quickly learned was that approach of like, I've got all the answers wasn't going to serve me very well. And then very quickly, what happened was this was 1999 when I joined, 2000 rolls around and the Web 1.0 bubble bursts. And we've yeah. suddenly, suddenly gone from everything's great and glorious to survival mode, right? It was really hard and challenging. We went through layoffs and I ended up at one point laying off more people than I'd hired because the company had grown so big and it was, it was really challenging. But guess, yeah, tough. the thing that really made it work for all of us was we sort of very quickly learned to be very transparent as a management team and with the team at large, helping people understand what were the most important things we had to accomplish in terms of, you know, growing the business, but getting costs under control about where we were from a financial perspective felt very risky because you were revealing to people how risky the venture really was. But it also engendered a lot of camaraderie, a sense of common purpose and understanding of what, about what we were doing. And that shift required that, you know, I had to sit there and go, I don't have all the answers. What are we going to do here? How are we going to pull this together? That's such a great example. I really want to like get you to elaborate a little here because it's one of these most counterintuitive things I often find like leadership journeys is that you feel like there's challenges. I, I can't tell the team. I, I need them to focus. I, I don't want to distract them. Often these things aren't coming from bad intent. It's just That's right. in many ways you're caring for the people. Yeah. But yet the challenge is things start to creak and That's right. they start to see information or behavior then that they can't aggregate to where we're told it's okay, but there's actually, you know, suddenly the roof is leaking and then the tire is falling off. And exactly. So this moment to push through that and actually say, well, the transparency actually creates trust. It helps people feel clarity of what is actually happening and focus, right? To your point of, right, let's knock these problems down together. Like, let, let's work this out. It's such a tough management transition, I think, for people to go through. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about how you work through that. And it is hard because you kind of got to hold two concepts in your mind at the same time. As, as a leader, your job is to be inspirational, motivational, to have the vision about what you can accomplish. And sometimes you need to have a vision for something that is going to be really hard to accomplish, but that you believe in deeply. But you need to also balance that with, I believe in this deeply, and here's what it's going to take for us to get there. And being open with people about the challenges, because what, what the realization was in a lot of ways is you hire smart people, right? We all want to get super talented people that we bring in on these things. And super talented people will see through if there is too much bluff and bluster in it, right? They want the motivation. They want to know and understand what the vision is. And we are here to make sure that people understand that as leaders. But they also want to be, they want their brains engaged in solving the problem, right? And if they feel like you are BSing them, that's an instant turnoff. And then they think that all the vision stuff might also be bluff and bluster. And then they start looking for other jobs. And so as we're going through this, it was partly the coaching that, that the rest of the team was doing with me as well. It was partly the sort of reality of the situation that we found ourselves in that also was common a lot across a lot of other companies in, that were going through this at the same time. This was you know tech bubble that was happening more broadly. I've also seen it as I've done it in other places. When I went to Google, very different experience. Google itself is obviously a big and stable company and doing great. I happened to have inherited at one point a 
product called Google Express, which was a same day and two days. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a bit of a challenging both product and team. And it was pretty clear, you know, it was pretty easy to get people aligned on, look, this product isn't going to scale the way that we're operating it today. Let's have some hard conversations about what the vision is for it. How do we turn it into more of a marketplace? How do we think about its role from a supporting multiple retailers in e-commerce through for Google? All of that was relatively easy to sort our way through. It was still a lot of work and, and required a lot of sharing of really clear Christ. priorities people to honest. understand you know, where we were headed with it. The more challenging problem was it was a product that required a group of people who were very diverse on a number of different dimensions to come together to solve it. And what I mean by that is typically what Google builds are software products. And software products are largely built by product and engineering teams, and they're sold by sales teams, and it's great on that front. This was something that had real-world operations behind it. And so there was a lot of the gender balance across this team was much more balanced than most Google teams. It was not a male-dominated group, and that created its own set of rifts. It had a much heavier operations focus. It was not something where engineering was going to always rule the roost, and there were some conflicts in that. Right, which is very part of Google's nature, right? Like it's a very engineering-led culture. Interesting. Yeah. What was interesting there was like making it okay to talk about the cultural problems that we were running into because people could see it. There had been a couple of senior people on the team who would have knocked down drag outs in a conference room with other people. (laughs) It's not that there's not a time and a space for that, but it's a bit more of like, how do we do that in a way that's respectful of one another that gets at what are the root causes of the issues? Great. You know, that took a lot of open conversation that we had as a, as a leadership team, but also with the rest of the team about what's it take to build better dynamics so that we can focus on what are the problems we're trying to solve and how are we going to solve them together, as opposed to your point of view is wrong and my point of view is right on these things. This stuff, I think, I'm... Delighted you're sharing this, Brian, because I think this really gets to like the nub of creating really high performance teams yeah. where they are diverse, where you're challenging the idea, not the individual, but to get people to that mental leap. Yeah. The easy path is for you to try and have a hard conversation for, with me and for me to take it personal and be angry at you for calling out a behavior I had or a situation that could have been dealt with better or a tough problem that we need to deal with, but I want to push it under the table. That's right. The easy path is to sort of like be angry and go off to my corner and give out about Brian and, you know, how dare he say that about me? He doesn't know anything about whatever my domain that our responsibilities are. And yet the best teams that I've certainly been part of will, will create space for these, this dialogue to happen actually really is to say, how can we get to the best answer? To, and do we agree on these shared challenges we got to solve? Yeah. And you, you really have to sort of put them out there, you know, like vulnerability is, is a, a one word to say it, but also like truth seeking as well. Like what are actually the real problems here? And that like remove yourself from the situation and think about as a team, how do we come together to solve these? And it's so infrequent that so many people get to experience that type of uh, like transitioning to that type of culture, building that culture from the, the onset. Again, very, very difficult. Yeah. So what were some of your lessons or tips that you would share with folks about how you got there? If I think about those two situations, there's a bit of a through line of 
How do you make it safe for other voices to share what they know? The concept of psychological safety is a really important one, and I kind of learned it viscerally. So when I was first coming from consulting into startups and I was the, you know, I'm seldom wrong, never in doubt. That means that I would. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd be the first to talk, right? Because I was the smart guy with the answers. And that means I wasn't making space for anybody else either. And so somebody gave me the, uh, the concept of, wait, why am I talking? W-A-I-T, right? And am I talking because, you know, I'm trying to be the smart one in the room? Or can I instead, especially as you get more senior, make space for other people to be able to talk? I learned that in, in startup mode because I got shown that I was kind of messing it up and, and, uh, and saw better results, literally better results in terms of relationships with other people by stepping back from that. When I came into the situation in Google, I went into coaching mode on that instead, you know, sitting with the two folks who are more senior male heads of engineering and operations and help them understand that while they may be well-intended in sharing what they know and their expertise, if they instead just sort of sat back and let the room work it a little bit, one of two things is going to happen. The room's going to get there because that's the right answer, if it is the right answer. Or you might actually hear something new that's actually new information that you hadn't considered before. And to be honest, neither one of those people initially was sure that I was right on either one of those concepts. But the other thing that they got was they had been hearing the feedback that the dynamic was really negative and people were pretty unhappy. And they knew there was risk of people leaving. And especially engineers, leaving your team is not a good thing when you're in that kind yeah. of situation. Yeah. So helping them understand that, like, I want you for the next couple of months to give this a try with me. I want you to try why am I talking? And just before you do it, step back and see whether or not other people have something to say. And that worked pretty well. And then we took it a step further. The team itself was also very broadly geographically distributed. So we were running a hybrid team before hybrid was a word anybody used. Most of them were in offices. We were sitting in Mountain View, California, and we had teams in Chicago, New York, Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles. Those people often were the one or two people that were sitting on a video conferencing screen with a group of us sitting in a room, and they could not get a word in edgewise. And so we came up with, a, with two rules even then, which were video conference wins. So if someone else on the other end is waving their hand, I don't care who's in the room ready to talk next, that person is going next. And then we also said someone in the room who's not in charge of the meeting needs to keep an eye on the screen. Your entire job is just to keep an eye on the screen. Now we call those hybrid meeting moderators. And when, now we talk <laughs> yeah, about yeah, yeah. one screen per person. But we were dealing with this because it was a real problem. It was people that had important information or insights to share that weren't getting an opportunity. And so that process for me, that's why I had a lot of affinity for going in and out and building Future Form with my partner, Sheila and Helen, in the first place is I went from being a consultant where the analytics were always the answer to a leader and a manager who realized it's all about the dynamics. It's all about the team. Right. And if you really want people to be engaged in solving the hard problems that you've got, that's going to come from diverse voices across disciplines, across gender, across race, across ethnicity. And if you want that to work, you've got to make it possible for them to talk and safe for them to talk. Great. If nothing great, else, great just like the experiences that I had taught me that the hard way. Well, I love these, right? Like the this is what I think is so actionable for people, right? It's just like these uh, 
like little tips and tricks or tools, this notion of weight. I, 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 like, I love it. It's brilliant. And you sort of, you know, what I was hearing you say as you were explaining about it is the actual power of not speaking first in many ways gives you a chance to sort of test what you believe the answer to be. It's almost like a little experiment. You know, I think the answer is we should go through the door on the right. If I pause and the team start explaining why they want to go left or, or as you say, a new piece of information that you weren't aware of surfaces, that could totally shift your perspective as well and go, damn right, we should be going through the left door. God, I, I would have made us go through the right if I hadn't have let that or created that space as you're describing. It's a really interesting behavior because I noticed that as well with really, really good leaders as well, is that they actually often are the last to speak. They get the information, like they might have a viewpoint, but they get the information from the team, from the contributors. So it becomes like a melting pot, if you will, of information. And then if once all the information is out there, sure, then we, we can make the decision. But again, the archetype of so much of the, the narratives that we spin is these single leaders, generally male visionaries who just like told people what to do. And everyone was like, that's amazing. It just, this idea just came out of one person's mind. And that's why we have all these amazing products or companies or and yet really the truth of high performance is the exact opposite of that. And so like, I love when people like yourself share these stories because that's what's real. It's not yeah. the, the narratives and the archetypes that have sort of been built up in, in many ways by you know, whatever for, you know, forums they are. Yeah, and now you've created this interesting forum. So t- tell us more then about, for folks who aren't aware of the future forum, how did that idea sort of incept your motivation then from your learnings about work, like working in these fantastic companies through your career from management consulting to Google to all these, all these great businesses and then into Slack and seeing that go from whatever it was when you joined to now like what it is today and becoming part of uh, Salesforce. So I joined Slack about five years ago and uh, was running the developer platform team, which was a great experience and had a blast doing that. And at the start of the pandemic, this idea came back around that Stuart Butterfield, Slack's CEO and co-founder, had been percolating with a few of us for a couple of years, initially called the Center for the Future of Work. The idea was... Nice. Sounds very scientific. That's good. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There's two things. One is Slack has always had this amazing, fantastic research team run by Christina Janzer, and they do really great work. But most research teams that sit inside of a company, it never sees the outside world in a way that that we think it should, right? It feeds your product roadmap, it might feed some of your marketing organization, but mostly it's user insight type of stuff. And on the other side, we stepped into the pandemic and stepped into all these conversations with executives about not Slack, the product, but all the policies and challenges and what were people facing and how they were grappling with it. And realized we just put into flight a piece of research around habits and practices that people were experiencing during the pandemic, what was working and what wasn't. And so I, Stuart and I ended up talking along with a couple of other people and said, look, if we're ever going to do this, now is the time to do it. Let's make it happen. So I grabbed Sheila Subramanian and Helen Cup, who are my two kind of co-founders and co-authors on the book that we just released, and said, would you like to join me on this little adventure? We're going to go and build Future Forum. It's a research-based consortium digging into habits and practices and what works and what's not, but also working with small groups of executives across companies in sort of closed door forums 
to get a real sense of what the challenges are people are facing and who's finding interesting solutions. And then let's take that out to the world to educate them. And it was for me personally, an opportunity to build on my own learning experience, my own path, and also to sort of give back more broadly based on what yeah, we're doing. Yeah. So. It's fabulous. So like, that's what I love about this is how we met, right? Like as, yeah. as a part of that journey, right? Like, uh, you know, one of the most rewarding things I had the opportunity to be part of is collaborating with you and the team at Slack during the pandemic, right? Like bringing these CIOs, CTOs together yep. to like openly share. Nobody has the answer. How do we transition to this remote work? And I say to you, even we were chatting before the show, it's one of the most rewarding experiences. You're getting to do this sort of every day in a way, right. right? So I'm kind of envious in, in some respects. So yeah, tell us more about the journey. It is the best, best job I've had in my life, to be blunt. The most rewarding thing that I've done in a lot of ways. So we sort of do two things. The research that we put in flight now is a quarterly instrument called the Future Forum Pulse. We survey 10,000 knowledge workers around the globe. It is not Slack-centric in the least. Matter of fact, it's knowledge workers broadly. And what we do is we dig into what's working and what's not for people and for whom, because we get a lot into issues around diversity, equity, and belonging. And so that research is sort of a bedrock foundational thing. And then these groups of executives we gather are across disciplines because most of these problems are interdisciplinary, right? It's almost always your chief human resource or chief people officer because they sit at a lot of policy issues that are very important. But it is also CIOs and CTOs and chief executive officers, importantly, because as a former CEO myself, if, if the CEO of an organization isn't bought in to the vision of what your future of work looks like, it's going to be very hard for a chief human resource officer or a CIO as a standalone to actually make the change that they, that they want to see happen. So what we've been doing is doing the research that gets at the importance of flexibility, how it creates this new opportunity to build more inclusive organizations, a lot of ways in which people can connect with one another digitally as well as in real life. But really, a lot of it is about understanding that a lot of the conventional wisdom that we all had for decades, stuff built up for 100 years of working in offices, isn't always right. And it's not always the yeah, right solution. Yeah, it's not right. It's yeah. <laughs> so my own like starting point in this was all the stuff that I learned early on in my career turns out to have not been the right solution as things scale. And this sort of change can be hard for people, but one of the, uh, the benefits is I just think people are more open to, to change than they ever have been. And they're seeing some real bright spots. Well, well, this is what I love, right? And in many ways, it's the crux of the whole show, right? The reason it's called Unlearn is what things that may have led to success in the past actually limit our success in the future, whether that's habits, behaviors, or, or more important mindset. So I love contrary thinking and learning that has happened. You've got a bunch of it. So do me a favor, like share, share some of these sort of debunk the myths of what people believe or think <laughs> will work and what we actually know through your research and experience yeah. of what does actually work. So riff on these for a few, because I'm sure there's some nuggets. I'll give you a couple of them. This is why we ended up writing the book also. So how the future works takes not just the research, but also like Slack, but also companies like Genentech a biotech firm and Levi Strauss and company and Royal Bank of Canada and just a bunch of companies and says, what have they actually done to change things? So maybe a, a couple. One, the top-down policy for return to work. The, we're going to be hybrid, but it's going to be three days a week 
and it's going to be Monday, you know, Tuesday, and Thursday in the office, and Wednesday, Friday is flexible, is one size fits all, which doesn't work for most people. What so many teams have told us and what we've seen in our own experience and see through the research is teams have different habits and rhythms and patterns, and you've got to allow for team-level agreements that, that figure out what the right answer is for those teams. So for example, a lot of sales organizations that I've talked with and work with are thinking about the, what's the day of the week that if you're going to come into the office, we're all going to be in the office. What's the optimal day? Is it Tuesday yeah. or Thursday? Come on, tell me, Brian. Tell me. What's the answer? Depends <laughs> on your team and figure it out. Like, part of it is just pick a day. Don't make it mandatory, but like, hey, if we're all coming together, if, we're all, if you're going to come in the office this week, come in on Wednesday. So Adnan, who runs sales in the Americas for Slack, has Wednesdays as his day in the office because that way everybody else knows if you want to come in on Wednesday, you're probably going to find Adnan in the office. You don't have to, but it just makes it easier. So that way it's not, it's not a mandate, but it's also making it convenient. For a lot of product and engineering teams, they're thinking about what's the week of the month. Yeah. Because yeah, what yeah, they yeah, want yeah. is they want several days together to do planning, to get a little bit of brainstorming going as a group. And we'll come back to brainstorming in a second. And to have some meals together because they live more distant, right? So it might be a, a week of the quarter or a week of the month when, when they're doing that. But different teams have different periodicity, different frequency. And what you need to do is give them the guidelines. Don't make it a policy, give them the tools. So we start off in the book and we talk about principles and, and guidelines or guardrails, and then giving people the ability to figure, out, figure it out for themselves. Another one that is one of my personal favorites is mythology around whiteboards. Whiteboards, and we can get into water coolers if you'd like also too, but whiteboards are this great thing for creativity, right? Because I really miss the whiteboard and genuinely think that most people are well-intended behind this, but I think there's a lot of people that say, I miss the whiteboard because they miss controlling that pen and standing at the front of the room. And Being heard. Yeah. <laughs> Performance. And, the challenge with that is that's one of the biggest problems with classic brainstorming is it becomes groupthink. And this kind of goes back to my experience at Google, which is it's kind of like the problem of people not being able to break in, except it's worse and a little more insidious, which is if you are younger, if you are female in a male majority team, if you are not white in a white majority team and more junior, the odds that someone says, okay, we're going to have a brainstorming session, folks, everybody come together and give us your greatest ideas, the odds that, especially if the most senior person is holding the pen in front of the board, that you're going to give a radical idea or something that's, that's different or off the wall is really low. What's going to result is you're going to self-edit as you go along. So Totally, yeah. yeah. I love this concept of brain. The time. Yeah. yeah. I love this concept of brain writing. So what we do with people is we suggest, and we do this ourselves, if you're going to do one of those sessions, Whatever the prompt is or the work is, give you an example. When we did our first survey results coming out, the research report itself, the underlying analysis was 70 some odd pages. We said to everybody that was working on this, there was about eight of us at the time that were looking through this, spend at least two hours going through this, notifications off, focus time on your own, pull out what you think are the five most interesting findings, write them down. It doesn't have to be a great write-up, just like bullet point out what you think is most interesting hold on to it. Now, when we start the meeting, we're going to throw all those together into a doc so that no one's pre-filtering. Now, everybody take 10 minutes, read through everybody's stuff that's in the doc. Now let's talk. Because then so you, you see more good ideas, more bad ideas, 
you see you know what's common what's not and then you can do more with it and what that precludes that group thing thing that would have happened otherwise right so yeah so i love this method as well what you're describing right and it's actually one of the things i've noticed about great asynchronous teams as well is that the meeting is actually much more about decision making based on the information people have prepared in advance so right. I, I always feel like the, the sort of lift and shift from the in-person to remote where the first 10 minutes of the meeting, everyone's like, oh, hey, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And then there's like ramping everybody up to like, what's the point as to why we're meeting? And then you're sort of halfway through already and there's like 10 minutes of conversation and then we have to make a decision and everyone goes to the next thing and, and does the same sort of ramp up, ramp to all day where yeah. great teams do the work in advance you make this space, as you said, like block the time, whatever, to think. Yeah, and you're right. actually showing up with thoughts. And even better, like not the group think like this, here's a challenge we're trying to solve, come up with what your thoughts are and bring those and put them in, in this sort of melting pot of ideas, unfiltered, unedited, just what you think. And I think that's what I keep seeing is like, that's what great collaboration looks like in this world is there's time to like do thinking. Like That's thinking right. is a real, it's an activity at people. When you're just on this sort of conveyor belt of show up and talk about something and have a quick conversation about it and ramp down and show up and at the end of your day, you're left with just a bunch of activity tasks to do and none That's of them right. are thinking. None, they're all just like, get that done, ship this email, da, da, da. It's useless. One of the biggest surprises for a lot of people in our research is we talk so much about the need for flexibility in terms of work location and how many days a week somebody's allowed to work from home. And the vast majority of people do want flexibility. Most people want some sort of hybrid solution. They want to be able to come together with their teams. 79% of people want something that's flexible, but 94% of people want schedule flexibility. And what they mean by that is please stop jamming nine to five full of meetings or stop the expectation that I'm always available nine to five, because what we've managed to do, and this has become even worse over the course of the pandemic, is turn people's calendars into this game of Tetris, where you're trying to find a brief block of time to try to do heads down work. Because what happened is most companies just transitioned meetings from offices into people's homes, especially for middle managers who are feeling under pressure, they just added more meetings, right? They added more meetings to do status checks on projects and to see what was going on and to do check-ins. And that means that all of your deep thinking work gets pushed out into either the early morning hours or late night after you know dinner or after the kids are in bed. And no one's at their best at that point. Some people are. Some people are night people or morning people. But if you've already also done an eight or a nine hour day full of you know meetings and emails and slacks and yeah. everything else, it's, you're not going to be at your freshest. So my team does core collaboration hours. We, we have a 9 a.m. until 1 p.m. West Coast of the United States timeframe that we hold all of our team meetings, our one-on-ones and everything else within that timeframe. And it's not that something doesn't happen outside that, but we treat it as an exception. And you have to ask somebody, is it okay if we do this? Because that just means that it gives people a little bit more compression on the meeting time zone. And then you've got a little bit more ability to be more focused in other times of the day. And I loved what you said too about making meetings more effective. We talk about what some of the work that Dropbox has done in the book too, but meetings should be to, to debate things, to decide things, or to discuss things that need to be discussed in depth. The fourth one is 
uh, develop to develop people, right? Because you should be doing that synchronously. But we, we all have to get better at not having the meeting, which is the objective of which is to do something you should have done asynchronously, which is what's the status of everything. Or a meeting which consists of, you know, 45 minutes of presentation and then 10 minutes at the end of, okay, let's discuss it. Why? Oh, That's not a good use. I'm losing of- energy just envisaging myself in those sessions, right? <laughs> like, we, we- you've seen some of these, like actually Slack, I thought, and Atlassian were another great company that did this, right? You sort of like did away with the big old hands during the pandemic. Yeah. It's almost like people like uh, yourself, Stuart, and, and I know the founders of Atlassian too. They stop doing an hour long all hands and they just do these micro updates, five minutes, like here's what's going on in the company. These are the three things that really matter. You know, we're working on them. Here's where I need your help. Bosh. It's almost like social media style updates rather than the big presentation, jazz hands. Here's yeah. an hour of slides. And oh, sorry, do we have time for questions? Oh, no, we don't. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> we'll see you, next, well, see you next month. We still don't get that right all the time ourselves too. And, and it kind of ties back to my early we don't have all the answers. One of the things that we said when we, we announced that our, our di- about our digital first approach is we don't have all the answers and we're after <laughs> progress here, not perfection. And, and we continue to iterate. Even on things like that, when we shifted into, the, into, into work from home, the old all hands used to be the hour long, traditional hour long, highly produced, yeah, literally on a stage type of thing, where if you were remote, you could hear half the questions. They became a 20 minute thing that was both, you could attend it live and watch it, but you could also just watch the recording later. We've since done a lot of variation around a bunch of those themes because they're always all recorded so you can watch them asynchronously later because that's really important. Telling people if you want to see the all hands, you have to show up, especially when you're time. a global company. It just doesn't work. Yeah. No way. Yeah. I also happen to like playing them back at 1.5 to 2x speed myself. Yeah. I will confess. <laughs> but we're also trying to alternate a lot, right? We did the one this week that was a town hall style, which was there were a couple of discussion topics that I think consisted of 10 minutes up front. And then there was 20 minutes of Q, 20 or 30 minutes of Q&A. And there were eight executives on it taking different questions you know, that were coming in from the audience and doing that. And you also do that in Slack itself in an AMA channel. But what this goes to is experimentation and iteration are also important. We're also finding even over the, uh, as things get better is get better meaning pandemic wanes to some degree is not that people want to get together physically to watch that staged all hands, but the live interaction actually does carry some weight at times and it draws yeah. an audience. The asynchronous ability to view is also important. So how do we make sure that both of those, and by the way, it's pretty easy to do both, right? You have a time when people can watch it if they want to watch it live and you've got the recorded version. And then how do you allow people to ask questions asynchronously also before the meeting, if they want to ask it before, and in an AMA channel afterwards. One of the biggest things we've found that this kind of holds with some of my own early experiences, transparency with your employees is key to keeping them around. If employees don't believe their management is being transparent about their future work plans, they're four times more likely to tell us in Future Forms research that they're looking for a new job currently, actively right now and planning to leave because they don't trust you. Totally. And again, it sort of goes back to that when those early conversations of this show it's counterintuitive for many people to say, I need to shield the team yeah. from the problems. I need to protect them from yeah. the reality. And yeah. yes, high performance people want to know like they're truth seeking. Yeah. It's okay. Like no one expects everything to be perfect. 
it's a, like, you know, in a start, like I'm building a startup at the moment, right? Like I expect that 95% of the buildings are on fire at any one stage. Like <laughs> that's what I expect when you're telling me everything is fine. There's only a little bit of smoke over there. Don't worry about it. In that's many right. ways that creates more anxiety because you're like, that can't be true. I'm in a startup. Right. 95% of these things should be on fire. What am I not exactly. seeing here? You know, and, uh, and by the way, if, if I see smoke and you tell me there's not a fire, what else are you not telling me? It causes this cascading effect of mistrust and disbelief that's really challenging. And I do think there is, you know, from a leadership perspective, it is challenging because you need to be able to hold both things to be true. You need to hold that I can be inspirational, motivational. I can, I can point to the vision, but I can also ask for help. I can also be vulnerable about the fact that I don't have all the answers here. I can also say we're uncertain about where this is going to go, but you got to trust that you hired good people and that they're going to try to help you get through it. And by doing that, you'll get more than you, uh, than you give. Such a great insight. So looking forward then, right? Like you've done, you created the book. It's a fantastic book. I really recommend people dig into it. Like again, even if they've listened to this show, they've already left with some great little tips and tricks and tools that they can use uh, to, to manage their future of work better. But uh, for you now, as you look forward, like what are the sort of emerging trends that you're quite excited about or where you're starting to rabbit hole and, and find out what's going on? I still think, get into the book, some of the things that you can do in terms of schedule flexibility and asynchronous work. I think there's so much untapped opportunity on that one because the world of work, you know, has gotten itself wrapped around the office versus home and all that. And we're spending so much time and attention on that one. We all know, was the stats, this is a Leslie Perlow from Harvard Business School had this, 71% of, of leaders believe that meetings are ineffective. <laughs> and yet we all have them. There's a running joke I've got with one of our executives, which is, he's got the line, I think this is Cal Henderson who owns this one. I believe that mine are completely effective. It's yours that are the problem, right? It, which is always <laughs> what most people think. My meetings are pretty good. But we know we've got an issue there, and yet we invest very little as organizations in, in making that better. Improving and so I think the, yeah. there's so much more to be figured out in terms of what are, you're not going to change that overnight, but what are the ways in which you can restructure your approach? What are the experiments you can run? We're doing a lot of that today, even internally within Slack. I also lead our Future of Work task force. And so we're, we're experimenting with, you know, no meeting Fridays and maker weeks where you, you take a week of the quarter, week of the month even, and say, we're canceling all the recurring meetings and use that to not only get focus time back, but use that as a mechanism to then spend some of that time reviewing what are the meetings you've got on your calendar? Do they really need to happen every week? Does it need that right many on. people? So I, I think yeah. there's just so much untapped opportunity in terms of, of what we do there. I think there's a lot of work still to do on how do you build psychological safety in teams and importantly, the skills that we need to give to managers. The linchpin on a lot of this, and this comes through in, in a lot of executive conversations that we have also, is our frontline managers, we have underinvested in helping them not just cope and get through a pandemic, but giving them the skills to be leaders and coaches, not hallway monitors, right? How do we teach them what it means to drive a team towards outcomes, not towards attendance? How do you create a, an actual level playing field and how do you create psychological safety? I learned a lot of that the hard way. <laughs> I, yeah. I would like to help people learn it in ways that aren't quite so hard as we go forward. And so 
the book covers some of this, but there's so much more depth to be had behind it. And then the last thing I guess I'd say on that front is we're still in a lot of senses in, in these conversations talking about office workers, right? We're talking about people that are to some degree privileged already because they've got the ability to be more flexible. We're starting to, in some of the work that Future Forum is doing, especially with some of our partners at Boston Consulting Group and Miller and Knoll, think about deskless workers, thinking about people who are frontline employees. Right. And for them, flexibility can almost be a, a negative term, right? Because the company has flexibility and they don't. But what's it mean for them to have more control over their own work lives, for them to have more autonomy, but also more, more purpose? And so there's a lot that's outside the purview of the book, but that's sort of a next horizon that I think we all need to tackle. Well, uh, they're all very meaningful and valuable things, I think. Um, I'd really recommend people, not only like should they get the book, but they should really be following a lot of the work that you're uh, turning out, both individually and as part of the future forum. I think it's fantastic. And thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing lots of these tips and tricks and your own personal stories. You know, that's what I love about this show is your own journey is as much an inspiration for what you've captured and are now sharing with science to back it up and experiences and case studies. So yeah, thank you very much for your time and thanks for sharing. Thanks, Barry, for doing it. It's been a blast.